Welcome to the Terawatt Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I attempt to demystify the developments in space tech by interviewing thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and investors in the space industry. Today, I'm speaking with Laura Sayward Forsyth. Laura is the owner of space consulting firm Astrolytical, specializing in space science, industry, and policy, and also offering space career coaching services. She is a NASA subject matter expert for planetary science missions. She has researched astrophysics and planetary science at three NASA centers, flown two parabolic zero-gravity campaigns, and conducted geological research in a meteor crater. She is also the author of Rise of the Space Age Millennials. In this episode, we discuss a lot of exciting topics, including when are we going to be space tourists, how much do we need to save for going to space, and whether we'll start going to space for a vacation. We also talk about the use of stratospheric balloons for space tourism, the effects of going to space on the human body, as well as the importance of space for Earth. If you're someone who's thinking of saving up to go to space one day, you might find Laura's perspectives very insightful, especially her thoughts around how we can make space tourism more equitable in the future. Sit back and enjoy. Hi Laura, thanks for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. So let's get started. The first question that I usually ask to guests is, you know, to tell their story. And um, I believe, you know, I've already read your bio and you have a very interesting story. So I'd like to start with that. Sure. Well, um, all the way back when I was a kid, I've been interested in space and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went and got degrees in astrophysics and planetary science. And from there, I realized that there's a whole space industry out there that I was introduced to when I was in grad school. So I joined a nonprofit organization that does work on the International Space Station for NASA, but also interacts with the space industry. And that opened me up to all the different possibilities of how to commercialize the work that we do in microgravity and just in general in orbit, which has been fantastic for showing me the diversity of projects that is, you know, applications that are capable of happening in space, you know, what, what already existed and what could happen because um, companies submitted proposals of what they wanted to do, which opened up possibilities of things that I had never considered before, how space can benefit Earth. And then from there, I got picked up by a company based in Switzerland that wanted to do point-to-point transportation all around the globe. So I ran their Florida office trying to get them to operate um, where the space shuttle used to land. They were going to do something like Virgin Galactic, where they wanted to do a suborbital flights, and they wanted to also do, a, before they got to that point, they wanted to do parabolic flights. Unfortunately, none of that ever happened because they went bankrupt, um, but you know that happens <laughs> in our industry, in any industry. Yeah. Um, and when they went bankrupt, I was actually nine months pregnant with my first child, and so I wasn't quite certain what to do with my next step, so I decided to go ahead and start my own company, Astrolytical. This was the most Uh, no, a little over five years ago now. And I didn't really know how to operate my own company. I'd never thought of myself as an entrepreneur before. So I kind of just stumbled my way through it. That first year was very hard. But here I am with Astrolytical. We do um, space science, space industry, and space policy consulting and analytics, and a bit of space career coaching as well. And that has been really fun. It's been challenging, but also so great with the diversity of projects that I get to work on and the diversity of clients that I get to meet. 
Um, and, and what's been beautiful about that, it's opened me up to every aspect of space that I'm interested in. So, um, you know, anything space related, I can dive into, um, with, with or without a client because we do internal research as well. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like you found a way to kind of do what you wanted to do in the space industry. And, uh, that's super exciting. And it seems like there's a lot of firsts that you did, um, Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the the kind of services that Astrotical provides. Is it more on uh, the consulting side for companies? Because they, I also see that there is a career coaching side. So it's also for space aspirants. Uh, what, what are the things that you provide there? Right. So on the consulting side, it is consulting with uh, companies, both startup and uh, traditional companies that are space related. And also um, universities and governments, and it could be local governments. For example, we um, did a project with Camden County, Georgia on their spaceport, um, but also national governments such as NASA and also other uh, foreign governments as well. Um, and then that has been really cool because that brings me all kinds of clientele, you know, people who um, have a startup idea and uh, want to figure out how they can get it funded or want to figure out what their business plan is or want to figure out, you know, just how to even get started in the space industry versus, you know, a, a big company that just needs some help, some outside help doing something that they're just not familiar with. So that's been really cool. Um, and then the the space career coaching, I started a little bit later, maybe a year into my company when I realized that there was such demand for it. Um, and that is a mixture of students who are already studying in a space-related career path. And also, um, I think it's more majority of people who are already in other careers and in other industries who always wanted to work in space and want to do that transition from another industry, whether it is you know something technical or not, and they want to switch over to space. And, and there's so much demand for that. So I started that service just when people started reaching out to me for advice and assistance. And that's been really fun because it, it helps me to give back. You know, a lot of the advice that I got um, when I was a student through mentoring, and I still do a lot of pro bono mentoring as well. Um, but a, a, a lot of that advice that I got along the way, all the guidance I got along the way, now I can give back to the people who come to me who need help in their careers. And that's been a lot of fun. That sounds super exciting. I mean, I wanted you to talk about the the company and what you offer, because a lot of people don't seem to realize, you know, when you say I'm, you know, I have a company that is consulting in the space industry. I think those outside what I call the space bubble are kind of lost. Like, what do you actually consult? And at the end, you know, it's it's not very different from any industry. Like you say, you know, business plans, uh, reviewing, um, you know, what they're going to do operationally, etc. Uh, so it seems like, you know, space is kind of like other industries. And it's, it's, it's kind of a daunting term for a lot of people outside the industry. And this is a good way to, let's say, that's, that's kind of the aim of the podcast is to demystify what's going on in space. Um, it, it's super interesting to hear your background. And when I was reading your bio, what I also found interesting was you experienced zero G and that's super cool. So do you want to quickly talk about that? Because I always want to do that. I mean, I'm a space enthusiast, any space enthusiast wants to do that. Yeah. Yeah. If you get a chance, take it because it was fantastic. So I had the pleasure of doing 
two different parabolic aircraft flights when I was in graduate school through my advisor who had um, grants given to him by the governments, um, whether it, one was federal government, one was the local Florida government. Um, and one was on a plane that NASA doesn't have anymore, but they used to operate a plane out of Houston, Texas, um, Ellington Field, um, that did parabolic aircraft for research purposes. Um, and so that's when you climb and dive in a sort of a, it's not really a, a parabola, but it, it's it's sort of that curve. Um, and, and, and that simulates the microgravity environment because you are diving. Um, so when you're climbing, you're experiencing almost 2G. And then when you're diving, you're experiencing micro-G. You are floating. And it's just for 25 seconds at a time. But it's enough time for you to really feel like gravity has turned off. And for me, it, it was like a light switch. It was like, you know, gravity for my entire life has been on. And then suddenly someone switched it off. And there's really no other way I can describe it. It was not like scuba diving. It was not like skydiving. It was not like swimming. It was not like anything else I'd ever experienced. And my body just was not used to it. So I was like a bouncing ball. <laughs> um, they try to train you ahead of time what to do, but I was definitely like all over the place. Um, and the, the other time I did it was a, a campaign with a company called Zero G Corporation, which operates here in the United States and does um, these flights for both fun, you know, for tourists and also for research purposes. Um, the research flights are tend to be longer and we get a lot more training. It's a lot more, um, you know, focused on the task at hand. And that was a lot of fun. I would do it again. Now, full disclosure, these are called the Vomit Comet and I did get sick. I was one of those unfortunate ones who got sick. <laughs> um, but it was my own fault because they did not take the medication that they recommend because I had a friend who take the medication. He blacked out. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to risk it and not take the medication. And that was that was problematic. I should have taken it. So next time I get the chance to go, I'm going to, you know, take the meds and, and listen to the flight instructors and, and just go at it. And, and I'm really hoping that I get the opportunity to go again. And I did have an opportunity to go at one point, but at that point I was seven months pregnant and did not unfortunately want to risk it, you know? Um, so hopefully one of these days I will get an opportunity to go and it'll work out. So if you get the chance, sign up. And if there's anyone listening who is a student, usually students have opportunities either applying directly to um, an organization or through a professor. Um, so students pay attention to this and, and talk to your professors about how you can get involved in one of these flights. Oh, wow. That sounds super exciting. And I'm kind of jealous that, you know, I didn't get to experience that, but hopefully we're going to have that uh, in the future, more in the future. And we're kind of going towards that uh, that world, which seems science fiction. And still a lot of people think it is science fiction. And I didn't want to get into this further down in the conversation since you brought it up. When do you think you can actually go to space next, you know, be, being a paying customer and, you know, just to go and experience it again and come back? Do you have an idea of when you might go again? Oh, um, I, I absolutely want to fly to space in my lifetime. I'm sure a lot of your listeners do as well. And that's a big question, isn't it? Because we've been waiting for companies like Virgin Galactic to become operational for over a decade now. Um, we've been waiting for Blue Origin, which is, you know, traditionally a very slow company. We've been waiting for them for a few years now. Um, we've been waiting now for, um, you know, SpaceX. They they fly astronauts. They fly, you know, government astronauts right now. And by the end of the year, hopefully they might fly their first 
paying customers that are not government astronauts. And that's the Inspiration4 mission, which, um, you know, it's right now it's, it's open to the United States only. But um, I threw my hat in the ring. I, I, you know, by the time this airs, we'll know who the crew is probably. And it probably won't be me. But I still signed up. I, you know, I, I donated to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I did not sign up through the other, through the contest, but I did donate. So hopefully that'll give me a little bit of a chance to become an astronaut with SpaceX. And, and truth be told, if I get the opportunity, I'd rather go orbital than suborbital anyway, just because of the amount of time in space just seems so much more preferable to have a few days at least rather than just, um, you know, a few minutes. Uh, but I'll take either way. Um, so if you're talking about orbital space, that has been supplemented so much by the U.S. government, by other governments, um, simply out of necessity, you know, trying to get to the International Space Station and, and trying to get there with the space shuttles retired, not wanting to rely on the Russians for very much longer because they charge excessive amounts of money to have astronauts fly on Soyuz. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of money going into orbital and even commercial space stations like through Axiom, for example. Um, and so with that kind of subsidies, that area of spaceflight has um, you know, really transformed in much quicker than suborbital. Suborbital also has some government subsidies in the sense that um, private uh, not private, but um, yeah, commercial companies have been giving grants through NASA to fly payloads, to fly experiments, but it's not nearly the same amount of money. And so we haven't seen suborbital spaceflight opportunities mature as quickly as orbital. And then if you're talking about, you know, going around the moon, like with a SpaceX Starship, for example, that Dear Moon project, which uh, by the time this airs, there should be another announcement about that that we haven't heard yet. Um, those kinds of things are still several years out because because Starship is still several years out. Um, and then even flights to the moon, that's probably at least a decade out for uh, private individuals because we haven't even seen government do that since the 60s and early 70s. So we we have a long way to go if we want to go beyond suborbit or orbit for private individuals. But I still think it's within our lifetime. Mars, I think, is decades out. You know, I, I can't predict when humans, private individuals are going to go to Mars. I, I just, there's no way to properly predict that simply because government isn't even focused on that right now. There's no government that is. And SpaceX is, you know, dedicated as they are. They're still going to need government support and government funding for a Mars mission. I know people might disagree with me there, but I, I absolutely think they will. Uh, so what we are seeing here is near-term opportunities popping up in terms of orbital, and then hopefully near-term in terms of suborbital, and then beyond, we'll just have to see. Wow, there's there's quite a lot of you know information to to take in there. And first of all, good luck, good luck for the the contest. And yeah, if you do make it, that'd be that'd be great. I know somebody who had the has the opportunity to go to space, so I hope you make it. And uh, good luck for that. Um, going to the the points that you mentioned, I I wanted to take the listener's perspective. And if I'm a listener who you know who probably doesn't understand much of the technology of what's going on. And uh, let's say I have some savings and, you know, I think I can afford and maybe it'll get down to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And I have that and I'm ready to pay. When can I expect? Is it five years, 10 years? Because people are kind of lost. It's like, you know, it's been going on since, uh, yeah, two decades now. So they're kind of lost. They, they, they just want to know. When, when are they going to get to go to space or even, you know, I don't know if that even matters. You can have your comment on if those people actually care about going to space, you know, orbital, like you mentioned, or suborbital. 
But when do you think they can go orbital or suborbital? I wish I could tell you because I want to know how much money I need to save up and when I when I need to spend that money, right? Um, so it's really hard to predict these things. The idea is that it will imitate the aviation industry and in that initially aviation will be, you know, primarily government and then it'll be primarily, you know, the wealthy individuals who can afford it and then it'll open up to the more common person. That's the idea. Whether it works out that way, we have yet to see. And so the idea is that you know, with a few thousand dollars, maybe you and I might be able to fly you know, in a few decades when the price goes down. But we have not seen the price go down. In fact, Virgin Galactic keeps raising their prices. And so you still need about a quarter of a million dollars to fly to suborbital space. And that, like I said, it's just a few minutes of space. And then you come back down. Um, and right now, you can sign up for that. I mean, they, I think they've paused for the moment their reservations, but they'll open it up again, I promise you. Um, and Blue Origin is going to open up their reservations soon as well. Um, so if you have, you know, more like hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can you can sign up. Um, when you get to go is another question. <laughs> I don't know when they're going to be operational. I've got some guesses. Um, you know, I... I had a feeling that they weren't going to be operational this year just based on, um, you know, their technical challenges. And in fact, Virgin Galactic last week announced that they were not going to be operational this year. They're postponing it till next year. And I don't think that they're going to be operational next year. I think it's going to be more like 2024 at this point. But it's so hard to tell. Um, Blue Origin is purposely going slow. Um, and they've got other projects to work on, like New Glenn and, and the Blue Moon project for the Artemis program. And so, um, you know, it's really difficult to know how much focus Blue Origin is putting in their human suborbital flights when they are already making money on their um, you know, payload flights for um, New Shepard. And, and so who knows? But I think it'll be sometime in the next decade that people will start flying on these suborbital flights, again, for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not, not I personally can't afford that at this time. Maybe in several decades down the line, I'll be able to afford that, but I can't right now. Um, and then when you're talking about flying to space, like buying an airline ticket and flying to space whenever you want to, that is still probably a generation out. I hope that it's within the lifetime of my children. I want them to be able to experience that when they, you know, if either any of my kids get a chance and, and want to but you know it's really hard to predict the future yeah no absolutely it's it seems like there's you know if you are someone who doesn't understand space but who just wants to get to space it seems like you you need to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and hopefully they'll they'll get the chance uh, do you think that people will actually get to go and stay up in space uh, because axiom space which you know recently got funded and became a space unicorn um, uh, apparently they they are trying to build uh, what you call space hotels so do you expect a world where people go up and you know spend i don't know a few days in space and i'm trying to call it vacation uh, maybe it's maybe it's a bit lame but do you think that world is possible um where we go stay up there spend a few days and then come back down or is is it still sci-fi-ish I think that's absolutely possible. It's just not today. Um, you know, it, it might be a few decades from now. And Axiom Space does want to do that. And they're the ones that are further down the line because they have the funding and the cooperation from NASA. 
Bigelow was first in line. Unfortunately, it's been about a year since they went dormant, and I don't think they're going to come back. So that I wrote a blog post recently about all of these promising companies that have said they want to do space hotels or commercial space stations and have died in the process of trying to do them. I don't mean people have physically died. I mean the companies have died. Their projects have died. And so this long list over the past, you know, over 20 years, and I just stopped it at about 21 years, of all these projects that were so exciting at the time and then did not see the light of day. And so at this point, Axiom looks like they might actually succeed simply because there is a push to do something to replace the International Space Station. And we know that NASA is not going to replace the International Space Station. They are working on Gateway, which is a space station that's going to be around the moon. But they do not want to replace another space station in low Earth orbit. Instead, they want to fund commercial companies to both fly astronauts to low Earth orbit and also have a destination in low Earth orbit. And Axiom is not going to be, Axiom Station is not going to be as big as ISS. Um, and so what we're seeing is a transition from this large space station, which is just an incredible feat, but also extremely expensive both to build and to operate, a transition to something that's a bit more affordable and smaller that commercial companies will operate with tanker units that will be governments. And, and you know, you know NASA is going to have a big play in there. If this becomes operational, NASA is going to have you know, probably facilities and regular trips to Axiom Station and also other government agencies as well. Um, and, and so this is the idea, but when is it going to happen? We don't even know when the International Space Station is going to retire. We don't have any agreements set in place. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's a decade out. Who knows? Um, now, there are some other companies that have announced that they want to do private space stations, space hotels, and right now their plans do not look realistic to me at all. Um, so I don't think that any of those are actually going to succeed. But maybe a decade from now, maybe we'll see another realistic company pop up, and whether it's funded by NASA or some other, you know, wealthy benefactor or other government agency we'll just have to see yeah there's a lot of waiting game and hopefully it's we're waiting for that future and turns out to be let's say an exciting future um what do you consider about what do you think about the you know the stratospheric balloons because there are a couple of companies that um that are there that are proposing trips to which they also call space uh, i think the definition of space is you know getting a bit blurred but honestly i don't know if you know, people who are paying actually care if it's the Carmen line or if it's, you know, 100 miles or 50 miles, they just want to go up there. But there are some companies starting to offer, you know, stratospheric balloons um, for tourists. Um, What's your perspective on that? Is that, is that, let's say, the easiest option? Or are there other challenges associated with it that, uh, you know, talking about? I'm really excited about those. Now, I don't consider them space. They don't consider them space. They call them near space. Even though one company is called Space Perspective, um, it's the perspective of space. It's the perspective of having that overview effect. Um, So let's get definitions in here. So when we talk about the Carmen line, there was a a man, Van Van Carmen, who calculated a rough estimate of where's the Dillon delimitation mark of space is, and that's roughly 100 kilometers. And there's there's no firm cutoff here. It's just roughly 100 kilometers. And then you'll see some other definitions, like Virgin Galactic uses 80 kilometers or 50 miles. The U.S. government uses 50 miles. Um, and there is a colleague of mine, Jonathan McDowell, who did a paper maybe a year or two ago, wrote a paper, um, you know, talking about how uh, the the, uh, the atmosphere fades away and 80 kilometers is probably more accurate than 100 kilometers. Um, and then when you're talking about these stratospheric 
stratospheric flights, these quote-unquote near space, you're talking much lower. You're talking around the uh, 23 to 30 kilometer mark. Um, so much, much lower. It's not anywhere near space. Um, you know, even if you're talking about um, the highest altitude balloon that's ever flown without people, um, that was only up to, I think it was something like 50 kilometers. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, so way, way smaller, way, way lower, I should say, than, than space. But it still does give you that beautiful view of the black sky above and the the beautiful earth below. And for that reason alone, I would love to go. And that is slightly more affordable than a suborbital flight. Um, you know, it, it's still going to be in the range of probably about $150,000, um, give or take. Uh, but there are some promising companies out there that have, um, you know, definite plans to do this within the next five years. Um, you know, whether they succeed, I don't know. But uh, I, I, there's at least five that I know of that um, I would say at least two of those five are going to become operational in the next five years. And uh, I don't know about you, but I would love to see the curvature of the earth and the black sky above. And, and so even if I'm not weightless, even if I'm not, you know, floating around in the, the, the cabin of the, the, the canopy of the balloon, at least I'll get to see that beautiful view. And I'm saying I because I would love to imagine myself there. I don't have that kind of money. But I do think that that's an opportunity for someone to go ahead and see the planet from above if you've got that kind of funds. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to do that. I think it seems like that is the least um, I can imagine myself doing, even if, you know, let's say the technology for going to suborbit or to, to go to orbit does not, you know, it takes a bit longer than expected or, you know, the price points don't come down. The, the stratospheric balloon uh, approach is kind of how I'm telling myself that I'll go to space, but We'll see. Hopefully, hopefully in a, in a few years' time or probably in a decade's time, it, it gets even more affordable and a lot more people can go up there. And I think that's that's something that I keep thinking about, like, um, you know, how can we make space tourism more equitable? I don't even know if we should be thinking about it, because obviously that's kind of how technologies develop. You know, it's it's uh, initially very expensive. And, and then, you know, you mentioned the aviation example and is the same even now, you know, for even the Tesla uh, it started with, you know, a very luxury as a luxury brand, and then it's starting to become, let's say, mass consumption. I mean, it's still not mass consumption around the world, and I, I would I would imagine that's probably the case with space tourism. Correct? It's it's, it's you wouldn't you you can't argue that's unfair if um if if you have to you know uh, take take a stand there. It's this that's just how technologies evolve. Correct? It's an interesting point, and, and there are different ways to look at it. So on the one hand, is it fair that only the wealthy at this point can sign up to be the, either the wealthy as private astronauts or space tourists or um, the right stuff type that get selected to be governments? So government astronauts are very selective, right? Um, there are some companies or countries that have never selected any astronauts at all and then you know maybe they select one in their lifetime it, it, you know, up to this point and it's the best they can offer or somebody that has political connections um you know you just never quite know how that selection is but it's not meritocratous it's not uh you know it's not going to be equitable in, in a way um because there's a lot of people left out a lot of people who are disadvantaged. Um, and is that okay at this point? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about the ethics of that. At what point do you want space to be accessible for literally everybody? And I want that. I want anybody who wants to go in space to be able to get there. And at what point is it that we work towards that actively? 
And right now we've got the European Space Agency. They put out an announcement for astronauts. And one of those astronauts, they they um, are looking for a possibility of flying somebody who has a, maybe a shorter stature or a limb deficiency for, from their legs or, you know, something that makes them not quite the traditional, the right stuff type of astronaut that you think of. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I think the change is really going to come from the private industry. Um, this Inspiration4 mission that we spoke about earlier that is a private individual that is flying, that is funding uh, an entire SpaceX mission of four people. And he himself is going. He's a, he's a billionaire. And he's also choosing three additional people. And one is through a contest, so he's not exactly choosing them. Um, so it really could be anybody who is fit. Who Now, again, what does it mean to be fit? I don't know exactly. I don't know the medical criteria there. But one of the people he's chosen already that's been announced is a cancer survivor who survived bone cancer and has a prosthetic and walks with a limp. And so we're seeing now a little bit of a change. It doesn't have to be um, perfectly abled bodies. Maybe in the future there will be more disabilities in space, you know, and what about socioeconomics? So um, even though the contest, you don't actually have to donate money to enter the contest, most people who even know about it are going to be the privileged, um, have internet access that's going to be the privileged. So at one point, do the disadvantaged get a chance to go in space? And I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, are we even at that point with the aviation industry? Because, you know, not everybody can afford or have the opportunity to go on a plane. So I really don't know when we're going to get to that point. And I think it's something to strive for. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're you're right. It's, uh, you know, the two examples that you mentioned of the ESA astronaut selection and what Inspiration4 is bringing is definitely steps in the right direction. And it's good to see initiatives like that because uh, in the midst of just, um, you know, rich people uh, going up to space, there's at least some change. So, so, yeah, one can argue that it is a step in the right direction. And now I wanted to, let's say, step back from the space tourism world and just wanted to get your perspectives on the what's going on in the space industry you know there's there's been a lot of talk and uh, I would even argue that there's been a lot of uh, talk about space in the last few years um, than ever um, I don't know if it's because I have started noticing the space industry more since I transitioned into the space industry but it does seem like we are hearing a lot of things about space even outside the so-called space bubble so what do you think has changed? Because obviously you've been interested in space and tracking space for um, a lot of years now. So what has changed in the last few years to, you know, talk about so much space? I think it's been probably about the two decade point now that the quote unquote new space industry has formed. And that term is, is about being retired. It, it doesn't serve purpose anymore. But back in the day, it did. Because back in the day, it talked about companies that were forming mainly for the private space industry and not so much to be government contractors. The private space industry, or, or I should say private companies, have always been involved in space from the very beginning, but they've been government contractors. And the switch has been a mentality where um, companies want to exist based on non-government contracts, you know, business to business or business to consumer rather than government contractors. Now, we're still seeing a lot of those companies get government contracts because governments are still a main source, if not the number one source for space funding. Um, but it has been a mentality switch. 
Uh, another thing that we're seeing is more private capital flow into the market. And um, this is not my, my main area of expertise, so I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but we have seen record-breaking, um, you know, every year, even last year with the pandemic, we have seen record-breaking numbers of private capital flowing into the space sector. Uh, and that just goes to show how much interest there is and how much these private uh, investors think is, uh, you know, a reasonable return on investment in a time frame that is okay with them, you know, some longer term than others, which just tells you that there are plenty of places to make money in space. Now, there is also plenty of places to fail. Um, right now, we're seeing a trend of these special purpose acquisition companies. That's a merger between a company that exists solely to merge with another company to make it go public. So it's it's sort of a shortcut way of going public, of exiting. And we're seeing a big trend right now towards this direction with, with uh, space companies. And some of these are going to work out and some of these aren't. But the trend indicates that most of the time, these investors think they've got, you know, they've got a win here, right? Uh, they've got a win with bringing this company public. It's going to make them big money. And we've seen with Virgin Galactic, which was the big, um, you know, the big one to go public this way in 2019, um, they have gotten significant gains in the stock market with their SPCE uh, ticker. And, and so it's interesting to see, despite the fact that Virgin Galactic is not yet operational, they have sort of been this, you know, guiding point to see if space can be popular in the markets, and it is. And so we're seeing all these companies follow with all these different specs that are announced. It's almost every week now that we're seeing two, in fact, today, the day of recording. Uh, so it's interesting to see this kind of growth. And the more private com private capital comes in, the more growth there is. And it's not just within the United States, it's in other companies, countries as well. Um, and so we're going to continue to see this trend of, you know, space is inherently multidisciplinary. There are so many different fields, so many different industries that are involved in space, whether or not it's widely recognized. And so the more that space contributes to these other industries, the more that these other industries are paying attention to space. And it's it's a feedback loop of, um, you know, a kind of like a, a merger of interests so that um, in, in one sense, a, an industry that already exists, let's say pharmaceuticals, um, can benefit from space. But also space can benefit from the money that the pharmaceutical companies bring in. Um, same with agriculture. Same with, you know, you can name any industry. And any industry is growing with the help of space technology. And it's it's beautiful to see because it's a way, there's a term democratization of space. I don't know if it's a completely accurate term. But commercialization of space, I think, is an accurate term. Where we're seeing less and less government in direct involvement. You know, you're still going to see government involvement with regulations and, and, you know, licenses and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's less government money and more private money. And that's what's causing all this growth. And it's really an exciting time. Absolutely. It's, it's such, a, such, a, such a great time to be in the space industry, simply because there's just so much happening in, you know, across domains. But obviously SpaceX and, and, uh, and you know, the big companies get all the, all the news. But there's uh, news going across, you know, Earth Observation and and launchers and satellite manufacturing, satellite IoT, and different domains coming in. But what's your what's your take on the launch sector? Do you think that there are, let's say, too many companies trying to launch something or work on something that is um, expecting to launch? Uh, I'm not sure what they're attempting to launch, but I've heard numbers like 100 or 150 launch companies uh, being worked on. But of course, SpaceX is the one that gets the most attention and uh, maybe second is you know rocket labs or in europe there's ariane that's also 
gets in the news. But what's your take on the launch sector overall? I think that there's too many launch companies in development and not enough launch companies operational. I think that there's room for more operational launch companies, not a whole lot more, um, but there's a lot of pent up demand. Um, there's there's um, you know individual uh, payloads that might be brought up, you know whether it's uh, scientific payloads or commercial payloads. There's also a lot of constellations. So constellations are groups of payloads, and sometimes it's just a, a few, maybe a dozen, and sometimes it's thousands of, of satellites that are going to be working in coordination with each other, as we see with you know Starlink and others. And so there's so much pent up demand for launch, and it's just which ones are operational that are going to fill that need. You know, is it going to be a be uh, like a ride share that fills that need. You know, we're seeing, you know, SpaceX and, and some of the government launchers, such as in India, um, being able to really capture that ride share mentality of lots of different customers coming together and being launched at one time. Or is it going to be smaller launchers? Um, you know, you mentioned Rocket Lab and, and some of the other small launch companies coming on on um, like Virgin Orbit, for example, um, hopefully Astra and Relativity soon. These ones that are you know much smaller can launch a you know more uh, more directed to by the companies by their customers for you know orbits and timing and that kind of thing. Uh, and so, which ones are going to succeed depends on which ones come. I, I honestly think that there there's more opportunity there for launchers, but they have to actually start launching. Um, there's some launchers in, in, in development right there that are just never going to launch. And, and there's a lot, there's a lot of them. I'd say there's over a hundred launchers right now where they're just never going to succeed. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because it takes a lot of the attention away from, you know, I don't actually find the launch as important as what we're doing. So it's sort of like, you know, you've got your cars and the vehicles, that's exciting. Sure. But what are, what are these vehicles doing? Where are they going? You know, that to me is the exciting part. What's the purpose of it? Um, and I think a lot of times the launch industry overshadows what else is going on in space what what are these satellites doing what are the purpose of them what 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 about you know what are these humans doing in space what's the purpose of that um so i'd like to transition the industry away from being so excited about launch which i i still am i love launches but less excited about that because they're more commonplace and more excited about what we're doing in space and i think that's going to be that transition that really tells us that okay launch is mature now we can be less focused on launch and more more focused on what does space bring us what did, how does space benefit humanity and, and i i find that to be endlessly interesting because there's so many opportunities yeah you're you're, you're very right i mean I, I like the way you put it in you know let's say the the two categories that are underrated or underrepresented which is more the the application side of what we're actually doing with uh, all the satellites that are being launched on those launchers and then the second part about the what are those humans you know when you launch humans to space why are these humans going there and the kind of research that's going on and there's been i'm sure there's a lot of learnings and spin-offs that have come out of you know learning from human beings and you know the kind of experiments that they have done in the international space station and it's 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 super interesting to know that but i i still you know if i google what's the use of uh, space for earth you just find these spin-off articles and there are no let's say direct applications and i think that's an area that needs a lot of work and do you think the space industry has a role to play there or do you want let's say the outsiders to come in and discover that and you know spread the word how do you think we can help that transition oh it's both 
It is definitely both. So my very first full-time job in the space industry was working for uh, CASIS, which is also called ISS National Lab. It's a government, uh, it's a nonprofit that works um, under the uh, under NASA to focus on the benefit of the International Space Station for Earth. So, you know, a lot of NASA's projects on space station are for benefiting astronauts or benefiting spaceflight. CASIS focuses on how to benefit Earth. And so it was a lot of figuring out, you know, from from my insider point of view, um, you know, as a space person, how can we make space benefit um, life on Earth? But then it was also a lot of talking to other industries, um, talking to people who had never really considered launching things in space before and asking them, okay, if you had this, if you had a ride to space, because the ride is free if you get a CASES uh, grant, um, how would you use it to benefit your industry? And as I said earlier, space is inherently multidisciplinary. It is, um, you know, there's no barriers there. There, The only barrier is in our minds, uh, introducing space, introducing the space environment and the opportunities to other industries. And so, so much discussion with other people who had never really considered space before and getting them involved. Um, And so, so the beauty of introducing outsiders to space is that it brings in different perspectives that the space industry wouldn't have thought of because space, the space industry tends to be very insular and instead we need to open it up. We need to introduce all these other ideas because these fresh ideas will help us to grow. And we see this in so many different ways, <laughs> more than more than we can discuss on this podcast. Um, but I do think there is a, um, you know, a trade there. The one, the, the space industry needs to introduce the capabilities and, and the existence of space to outsiders and outsiders need to introduce their fields and their perspectives and the applications that they might be able to bring to space and it's it's a, a beautiful melding there and we haven't seen this enough I think that this is a really big growth area um, you know whatever the big new application is whether it's something existing already and we just make it better or maybe it's something we had never even thought of before yeah absolutely I think uh, you mentioned that's a project on its own and I think that's uh, I would consider a podcast on its own because each season you can just keep talking about all the applications that that got out of space uh, cool now I want to ask you let's say two either or questions and I would want you to choose um, and the first question is are you team moon or are you team Mars I've been Team Moon since I was in third grade. So when I was a child, I um, found a book about the Apollo program and I wrote a short story about going to the moon. And ever since then, the beautiful orb in the sky has really captivated me. And so I am Team Moon all the way. Now, I would love for humans to get to Mars. I just think it's going to be much, you know, take much longer. And I personally, I, I want to choose Moon over Mars personally. Um, I, I want to go there. My doctoral studies were on lunar regolith. And so being able to really dive in, um, get my hands dirty on the lunar surface, that would be spectacular. So I, I am Team Moon. Um, I mean, not uh, not that we're taking away, you know, what we saw what two weeks ago from the Perseverance landing, and it was it was super exciting, right? So. All three of those missions are just fantastic. I love the science that we do on Mars. I, I, I personally think we want to go to some of those outer uh, moons, like uh, you know, some of the really interesting moons of Jupiter and Saturn and see what we can find there too. Yeah, definitely. That's something hopefully coming up uh, in, in a few decades. Uh, and the second question is, are you team human exploration or are you team robotic exploration? Obviously, we've sent a lot of robots to... Uh, moon and mars uh, and of course humans to the moon but which team are you human exploration or robotic exploration 
Ah, see, this is a false dichotomy. We need both. We need both. And especially with humans ex exploration, we, human exploration needs robots. Um, so what we want is robots to help humans to, uh, you know, do things that humans can't do. Robots don't need, you know, food and they don't need water and they don't need air to breathe. And so we just send these robots out to prepare the situations, maybe building launch pads, or, sorry, landing pads or, um, you know, uh, habitats for then when we have humans land. Uh, and so I, I love the idea. We're not quite there yet, but I love the idea of these robotic helpers, um, you know, like the Arcanauts and, and those kinds of things that we're trying to get to where it doesn't have to be all human labor. It could be robotic helpers. Um, now, there are some places where robots definitely have a distinct advantage. We're not going to send a, a human out to where the Voyager probes are, uh, you know, outside of our, exiting our solar system. Um, but humans can do so much more in a, in a day than a robot can do in its lifetime um, in terms of geology and in other sciences. You know, that insight probe that's been stuck can no longer dig deep. Um, all you need is a little human to, 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 you know, I could do it. I could get a little shovel and get in there, you know? So there are things that humans can do better. And I think uh, the human ingenuity is really key. Um, so it actually costs more to automate sometimes than it does to just send a human because humans instinctively know how to move whereas automation actually at this point we're not quite there yet with ai to be able to get automation perfect so it, there there's um, a need for both definitely and and i kind of feel that sometimes the 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 effect of being in space is not talked about much but what's the impact of you know the humans being in space whether you're on the way to the moon or on the surface of the moon um, or I think even worse, I think if you're on the surface of Mars, but what is the impact of uh, being in space on the human body? Do you know of, you know, obviously we, we know of what happens uh, through the, what happened through the Apollo missions, but Mars is more a theory, but what, what does the science say today? We've done a lot of work over decades on how the space environment in low Earth orbit affects humans, and it's rough on humans. Um, you know, there's all kinds of medical problems that pop up, especially with the longer term duration missions. Um, but on the other hand, microgravity tends to be really helpful for for humans in terms of their comfort level and um, just the way that they float and sleep. I, I've heard firsthand accounts of astronauts absolutely loving being in microgravity. But when you're talking about reduced gravity on, on the moon and Mars, that we don't have enough studies. We only went you know for a day or two at a time during Apollo. So we really don't know the long-term effects of being on a reduced gravity environment. The radiation is going to be a big problem. We need to figure out how we're going to deal with the radiation outside of our protective Earth. And we don't know how we're going to do that yet. But what's interesting to me are some of those long-term implications. You know, we, I'm a big fan of the, the TV show The Expanse, and it talks about um, the belters growing and evolving to be elongated because they're not in a gravity environment. And so I'm interested to know, you know, generationally, how are we going to evolve as the human species if we start um, removing ourselves from Earth and putting ourselves in other environments? Cool. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's something that... There needs to be a lot of research on and hopefully the, the missions that are going to come up uh, in the next few years going to orbit, suborbital and also to the moon with Artemis can help us get there. All right, last couple of questions. Um, what do you think is the most exciting thing happening in the space industry right now? Or put it another way, 
what is exciting for you? Are you looking forward to something uh, in the next few years, a company, a technology, or even a mission? Anything that you're looking forward to? Oh, the moon, moon, moon. I love the focus on the moon right now. Um, you know, we've got the Artemis program here in the United States, and that includes the CLIPS program, um, which is, you know, these robotic missions with scientific objectives. Um, and we also have the human missions, which would be the Artemis, you know, two and three and so on. Um, and I don't know what the timeline is going to be. None of us really know at this point, but I'm really excited about that. But then there's also the partnerships with the, um, you know, the concept of the moon village the european space agency put out and and i know that russia and china also have lunar ambitions and it's just so exciting to see so many both countries and companies interested in lunar operations um, because we as a species i do believe need to get off earth and whether it's off earth and in these space stations like uh you know the sort of um Gennard k o'neill kind of concept of o'neillian cylinders or we go and expand to be a multi-planetary species and we we you know figure out a way to live on the moon we figure out a way to live on mars etc you know either way it goes i'm very excited and the moon is our first step you know i, I guess the international space station was our first step the moon is a step beyond that um where we really need to figure out if it's possible for us to adjust, to, to adapt to another world. Um, you know, I'm a planetary scientist and I consider the moon a planet. <laughs> and so we need to figure out if we can live on another planet and the moon's right there. And so that's what excites me is this whole almost global approach to exploring the moon next. And I, I want to see where that takes us. Got it. Um, I'm going to sneak in another question because you mentioned a planetary scientist and you brought in the point of moon being a planet. Do you consider Pluto a planet? Oh, absolutely. I think all the dwarf planets are planets. I even consider all the moons planets. So I take the geological definition. I don't actually know any planetary scientist that uses the other definitions, so, you know, the the uh, one that doesn't think, consider a dwarf planet to be a planet because it absolutely is. And we've got Ceres as a planet, for example. So absolutely, I, I consider all of those exoplanets. We've got thousands of exoplanets that have been discovered right now. Um, all of those are planets and, and um, exomoons. I'm so excited to see where the future brings us in terms of, um, you know, maybe first with telescopes and then later with probes being able to explore some of those exoplanets out there around other solar systems other planetary systems i should say it's a really exciting time very good very good your at least your team pluto in that way because there are i know a lot of people who uh don't really accept that pluto is not a planet um all right last question if you had the chance to you know, send a one-line email to everybody in the space industry. Um, what did that one line be? Uh, it can be, you know, something philosophical. It can be, uh, I don't know, an analysis note or a warning, whatever it is. But what would be that one line from your perspective? Oh, that is tough. I'm not entirely sure what I would say. But um, one thing I want to leave your audience with is to think about the possibilities as a whole. So a lot of times we get uh, siloed into our specific areas and don't think about the whole. Um, but there's so much we can learn by working together. So I, I think if I were to send one line out, it would be something along the lines of, you know, focus on working together because we can do so much more working together and collaborating and partnering than we can by ourselves. And, and, I, and I mean that in internationally as well as uh, multidisciplinary. I, I think that there's so much we can learn from each other. I love that. That's a, that's a beautiful note to end the podcast on. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was a very fun chat. 
Thank you for having me. Hey, this is Arvind again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Tarawat Space podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Tarawatch on Substack. That is tarawatch.substack.com where I attempt to decode the recent developments in space tech and its impact on Earth. Thanks again and hope to see you for the next episode.